0: In truth, it is well with our soul because of what we remember and proclaim at your table this day, because of the broken blood or broken body of Jesus Christ, because of his shed blood alone, it is indeed well with our soul. We recognize before we knew you that we were lost. Without God, we are hellbound, and justly so because of the punishment that our sin deserved, and a just and righteous God must levy in order for his character to be upheld. But in light of the substitute sacrifice, the sufficient spotless lamb that was provided in Jesus Christ, we can truly say it is well with our soul because he was crushed for our iniquities, because he was bruised for our transgressions, because the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes our soul was healed. We proclaim this is true this day. We pronounce to the world that there is hope and salvation in Christ alone, and we nourish our souls at the wellspring of living water, Yourself proclaimed and revealed through Your Holy Word. I pray that You would open our minds to comprehend, deepen our affections to appreciate, and equip and quicken and enable and fit Your Word to our tongue that we might proclaim its glories and its beauty in our families and to all You give us occasion to reach. I pray, Lord, that your kingdom would advance as a result of the means of of grace being proclaimed this day. That Christ would be glorified and exalted in the hearts of his servant. And even upon the places of prominence in our land, that once again the eyes of people would be fixed to where their help truly comes from, Jesus Christ and him alone. In all of this we pray, that you would bow our hearts before the authority of the one who holds our souls in his hand and has died to purchase them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a gift and glorious privilege it is to open up the Holy Scriptures, the profound and beautiful, the inerrant, unfailing, infallible word of the Lord and to feast our souls upon it's truth. I invite you to turn with me to First Peter 2 this morning as we continue in our first Sunday of the month communion series in First Peter. This leads us to the second portion of chapter 2, verses 12 through 25, will be our primary text this morning. Under this title, Honorable Conduct. This title comes from verse 12, wherein the apostle instructs the church. Sojourners and exiles, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Therefore, our theme today will be honorable conduct, seeking to apply this injunction. Uh, The aim of this morning's message, similarly, is to equip the church with gospel strategies to navigate society to equip the church with gospel strategies to navigate their network of relationships that we have within any nation, but particularly our own. And we see three examples of this as the apostle lays out applications of honorable conduct in three with respect to three human institutions. With that, would you stand out of reverence once again for the reading of God's holy word, and let us consider these scriptures which are the bread of life for our souls this day herein is the holy word of god proclaimed first peter 1 2 excuse me first peter 2 12 through 25 listen to god's word be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I failed to read verse 12 in our introductory reading there. I did read it earlier. But again, it says to us, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 12 presents, it issues a directive for elect exile sojourners. So we remind ourselves that this is a category that Peter addresses believers. All the way back to verse 1, he calls us elect exiles. Why? Because we are distant from our ultimate home, therefore exiles. Sojourners, similarly traveling, elect because God has chosen us, we are His people. Thus, we have a directive, special instructions given our status as elect exile sojourners. We are to conduct our affairs while we remain distant from our final destination, our ultimate homeland, namely heaven or the new heavens and new earth. We are to practice during this meantime, voluntary submission to human institutions. In the meantime, we are to serve the Lord in part by acting honorably, conducting ourselves in honorable ways, and this includes an application of voluntary submission to human institutions. As the passage unfolds, example institutions are referenced. First of all, civil government. Verses 13 through 17, an example of a human institution that believers to some degree in some capacity are to offer voluntary submission unto as honorable conduct before the Lord and to society or interacting with society. Number two, servitude or slavery is an additional human institution whereby... Voluntary submission is an act of honorable conduct, verses 18 through 20, real popular one for our day and age. Number three, and just you know, maybe slightly more popular, marriage, verses three, one through seven. Marriage, again, a human institution whereby voluntary submission models honorable conduct of the elect exile to society and within society. Peter points us to the example of Jesus earthly ministry throughout these passages echoing the author of Hebrews appeal and this is this comes from Hebrews 12:2 quote look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith or looking to Jesus the a founder and perfecter of our faith who is uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Same heart here. We look to Jesus who voluntarily submitted to the Father's will, even insofar as it called Him to endure suffering, even under tyrannical institutions of that day, even unto death. We look to Him modeling this for us, for the joy and endurance that is needful as we are similarly called to suffer for His name, though living under the current conditions Often, in any given society, the living under current conditions often involves suffering and humility, some cases humiliation, some cases persecution, even martyrdom. Though this is often the call, this calling ultimately serves to model the ministry of Jesus in His work of redemption. In this way, the tyranny of man and His institutions in many cases, and also our sinful condition, generally speaking, the fallen state of the world, and the order of hierarchical relationships in society, all these things are co-opted as opportunities to display the gospel among unbelievers. So as we act honorably in our conduct in these example applications, we are able to proclaim the gospel in a strategic way, to equip the church with strategic gospel strategies to navigate our world. And this is what's modeled for us um, and also explained for us among the apostles like uh, Peter and, and Paul. In First Peter, we have this concept by way of imperative. This is a commandment instruction that's given to us. In other passages, and turn with me if you would to Acts 16, especially in Acts, we have numerous apostolic examples of these very concepts in action. And there's one particular striking instance I would like to open this message with in Acts 16. So let's turn there. And the book of Acts is unfolding with the gospel going forth to Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth, and it is not without resistance. As the word of God goes forth, it encounters pushback from the powers that be. And this is one of those instances, this is Paul and Silas, they end up in prison for their calling, but there is an interesting orientation of their interaction, their state of mind, their posture before the authorities. We pick up on this story in verse 20, and when they had brought them, this would be Paul and Silas, to the magistrates, of course, governing authorities, they said, these are the false accusers, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he, the jailer, put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And do we remember what happened, kids? Did Paul and Silas, were they trapped in prison for a long time, or what happened that night? Does anyone remember? There was a mighty earthquake. Remember this? The foundations of the prison were shaken. All the doors were open, and what happened? the bonds of the prisoners was loose were loose okay so now they were free right no longer chained verse 27 when the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open he drew his sword and about to kill himself he was about to kill himself why was he about to kill himself well he supposed something supposing that the prisoners had escaped now listen let me pause here and make a point if paul and silas only cared about their own freedom from this tyranny if their only thought in their mind was if I can be out of this jail and out of this suffering, this situation where I risk suffering, after all, the wounds are still fresh from the last beating they received, I'm at a high tail it out of here. So, as soon as those chains were busted, I mean, you and I, most of us are probably just under the cover of night, got, uh, made a break for it. They did not do so. And the question is why? Paul cried out with a loud voice Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Paul clearly had a motive. That was deeper and more profound than just running away and escaping at this time. It was, yes, a gospel motive. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. And when he uh, brought them out, and then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word that of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And so you see this miracle of salvation of the jailer because Paul and Silas co-opted their own suffering as a gospel opportunity. Instead of running away as soon as they had the opportunity from this tyranny, they instead stuck around, (laughs) and that made such an impression on the jailer. He gave his life to Christ, quite the deal. Now, they did something else, verse 35. When it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Pausing again. Once again, uh, f- uh, you know, you're free to go. The uh, magistrate says, Get, you know, hightail it out here. But once again, they stay. Why? Well, Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And, they, uh, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid. And when they heard that they were Roman citizens, when they heard that they were Roman citizens, so they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of prison and visited Lydia and so forth. Uh, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So you see, this sequence of events is a definite application of point number one of our sermon. Let me give you a heading. Our heading is this: Living as servants of God, given the imposition of civil government. How do we live as servants of God given the imposition of civil government? Number two, living as servants of God, a second application, given the subjugation of slavery. Living as servants of God given the subjugation of slavery. And number three point this morning, living as servants of God given the example of Christ's, uh, you know, Jesus' own suffering. Living as servants of God given the imposition of civil government we see modeled in this account we just read that Paul and Silas were living as servants of God um, even when the civil government imposed these harsh conditions upon them. Verse 16, back in our text in 1 Peter, tells us this. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. How do we live as servants of God in our circumstances such as Paul and Silas incurred and uh, um, experienced in their day. Well, the one course of action that they they took is to realize that they answered to a higher master than self-preservation. Were Paul and Silas slaves to fear? No, they were not servants of fear. If they had been servants of fear, they would have run at the first opportunity. Were Paul and Silas uh, servants to themselves, were was their primary motive to protect themselves? No, they were not serving themselves themselves. Otherwise, at the first opportunity, they would have run to safety. Instead, they took the opportunity to proclaim the gospel with authority, to call an individual to repentance and faith, and to proclaim righteousness to a government. And they did this because Paul and Silas were servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not servants of Rome, first and foremost. They were not servants of themselves, servants of sin, fear, malice, slander, the poisonous things that we are talking about in 1 Peter 2.1, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, whatever. No, they were acting as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an example of living as a servant of God, given the imposition of civil government. Now, why are we to submit to some degree or in uh, as much as the Scriptures tell us, to human institutions. let me give you three reasons that are also qualifying conditions. In other words, there are reasons for submitting to human institutions which are also qualifying conditions. Because the point might arise, should I submit to any human institution? Answer, no. Should I submit to government in everything they ask me to submit to? Uh, Answer, no, especially under a wicked government. But there are three reasons given in our text today to submit to human institutions, which also qualify the conditions for submission. The first is in verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why do we submit to human institutions to the degree that we are supposed to? Well, so that unbelievers may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We submit to secure the testimony of good deeds unto the glory of God. So this means that any submission that requires us to do a bad deed is out of the question. You see, the context qualifies the application. But insofar as our submission demonstrates, it secures a testimony of good deeds such that it glorifies God, we submit secondly we submit to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people verse 15 for this is the will of god that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people again the qualify or reasons to submit to human institutions is qualified by or there's qualifying conditions and these reasons in fact describe their limits why do we submit in some cases to human institutions We do so to put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. So you can see how this would forbid some kinds of submission that may be asked of us. In other words, if the government of today tells us that transgenderism is a legitimate sexual preference, then we understand that is the ignorance of foolish people, and we do not submit. We do not say with the Supreme Court that transgenderism or sexual preferences outside of God's creative norm are indeed normative, are indeed legitimate. No. Why? Because in submitting to any institution, we only do so insofar as we put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. We do not affirm the ignorance of foolish people. And then, third, and this comes from the next, or the next chapter, similar idea, third reason. That's a qualifying condition is to put to slames, shame slanderers. Verse 16 of chapter 3, yet do it, this is re- with respect to the defense of our faith, very famous apologetics text, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So in submitting, we, re- we do so to do what? To secure a testimony of good deeds under God's glory. To put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And here, number three, to shame the slanderers. To basically prove wrong those who bear false witness against Christians. All right. Next point under the imposition of civil government is limiting clauses. And this is a related idea. When we are living as servants of God given the imposition of civil government, we recognize some limiting clauses again in our text. And these are in verse... 13 or in 14 be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good do you see what is implicit here punishment and praise how do you judge the legitimacy of a government Well, in part, a metric for analyzing the health and and, and legitimacy of society is is applying the punishment and praise test, if you will. What does the government permit and celebrate, and what does the civil order punish and condemn? These are metrics for analyzing. These are parameters, indeed, for civil obedience. In other words, we are to obey the civil government insofar as they rightly punish wickedness and they rightly praise righteousness or those who do good. The context implicitly invokes a standard for a minimally reasonable, just, and legitimate society. What is a minimally reasonable, just, and legitimate society, according to Scripture? That which punishes evil and that which praises the good. Now, this should sound familiar to you if you've spent any time in Romans 13, because the concept is also qualified there in context. I go over this because it's very important. These are debated texts. These are controversial texts today, and they're sometimes wielded by the ungodly to try to force us into subjugation that is outside the parameters, the limiting clauses of God's Word let every person, Paul says, another apostolic injunction, to live with honorable conduct among human institutions, Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority then do what is good and you will see and you will receive his approval you see here a minimal standard for reasonable just or legitimate government or society is one who approves of doing good and one who is conversely a terror to evil conduct so keep that in mind as we seek to faithfully apply this commandment conduct yourselves honorably by submitting to human institutions In so doing, living out your service to God, even under the imposition of civil government. Here's a few rules of thumb that Peter gives us. And by summary in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, these are helpful sort of one-liners, aren't they? Honor everyone. How might we apply this? From the elderly COVID shut-in in our day... To the pre-born child in the womb facing the threat of abortion, we are to honor everyone because each and every individual is made in the image of God. From those who are violated by the powerful uh, because they are exploited in their weakness, to those who are in positions of power and authority, each and every one according to God's word is made in His image and this is the foundation and basis for honor. This is a biblical anthropology. I hope it sounds familiar to you. I hope you spend a lot of time thinking about it. Why? Because you and I need our senses exercised by reason of use to discern both good and evil because there's whole movements out there shouting their hashtag proclamations that are basing the dignity of the human on another foundation entirely. And you need to be equipped to have the discernment to realize what it looks like to conduct yourselves honorably in a confused world. Why do lives matter? My uh, buddy sent me a little hashtag. It was a satirical rebuke of some of the ungrounded claims of our day. It was hashtag no lives matter, signed Charles Darwin. No lives matter. Hashtag no lives matter, uh, signed Charles Darwin. That little satirical uh, um, hashtag makes this point. If we were not designed by the Lord Himself to bear His image... If we are the product of random time, chance, and molecules exploding out of nothing, what is the foundation for lives mattering in the first place? Ultimately, there is none. However, if each one of us is made with the forensic uh, evidence of God's fingerprints upon us inasmuch as we bear His image, then there absolutely is a foundation for honoring everyone. And lives matter because God says so. Not because some activist movement says so, not because some new Marxist Trojan horse claim is trying to bring in a whole bunch of redefining anthropology in the name of some righteous cause, and in the end, the cure is worse than the disease. No, we honor everyone because God says so. Secondly, we love the brotherhood. We recognize that our primary identity and allegiance is with those who are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a people in Christ. Notice 2 verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. There is such a preoccupation, as we've said in messages lately, for identity and belonging in our culture. And our streets are ablaze for lack of that sense of unity and identity and for the confusion that has filled the void of lostness in our culture. The Bible has the prescription We have the basis for true unity and love on the foundation, as we've said before, that God identifies His own by virtue of those who share not an ethnic blood, but the blood of Jesus Christ. Not a family uh, uh, family line, temporally speaking, but a spiritual family bond to Jesus Christ through the adoptive work of His Son. Now, to the degree that people lie outside those terms of identity and favor, They are in a bad way. They are lost and they need the gospel. And we are on a rescue mission to announce that the only way of salvation for identity and purpose and love and communion and human solidarity, if you will, is to be bound together in Christ, to be a new nation, a new people, a new possession for his possession, a new priesthood, a new race according to the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore the love of brotherhood is established in the blood of Christ the blood of Christ which we celebrate here fear god There is a reverence reserved for the true absolute and impartial judge Jesus Christ affirmed as much in his earthly ministry when he suffered he did not threaten verse 23 but continued earnestly entrusting himself excuse me to him who judges justly Jesus Christ recognizes God as judge And inasmuch as he is the ultimate and only true judge, uh, uh, absolutely speaking, he is the one alone deserving of fear. Uh, This was echoed in chapter 117. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter is careful to distinguish. We are not to fear governments. We are not to fear man. We are not to fear suffering. We are to fear the judge who judges justly. And finally, we are to honor the emperor. In honoring the emperor, we recognize that the office of civil magistrate is indeed ordained by God, as we've already recognized from Romans 13.1 in our passage here. We recognize that the office of civil leadership is established by God by His prescriptive will. We also recognize further that certain officers are placed there in His providence. And while they might have a whole spectrum of wickedness or righteousness, nevertheless, we see modeled again for us in the uh, account or in the record of the book of Acts, a certain honor for sure for the position of those who are in civil authority. And so you can, again, reference some of those passages to give us rules of thumb for how to live as servants of God given the imposition of civil government. So that's point number one, verses 13 through 17, honorable conduct Looks like living as God's servant, even under rule that doesn't share all of our worldview premises and includes these uh, eras and different rulers and civil governors and so forth. Major point number two living as servants of God given the subjugation of slavery. Now, this is going to be a real popular message for today. So here we go. Verse 18 Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now let me begin in the subjugation of slavery or servitude section by defining and distinguishing slavery. My favorite definition of slavery, I can't remember where I picked this up, but you can write it down. It's a good one to have, I think, in your repertoire. That's how you say that word in French, repertoire. Um, so what is slavery? Slavery is owning a share in another man's labor without his consent. Owning a share in another man's labor without his consent. Now, this can be Uh, established in multiple kinds of ways, and this is kind of the spectrum of slavery. Let me give you some examples. Confiscatory taxation. Do we think of ourselves as enslaved in our society due to the fact that unjust taxes are levied against us? Well, think about it. What are taxes, if not a claim to your labor? And I don't know too many people who consent to too many taxes. So insofar as there's an unjust tax, then that is the government exercising a share or, or uh, exercising ownership over a share in another man's labor or an individual's labor without his consent. Uh, secondly, there's chattel slavery. This would be the buying and selling of human capital. This tends to be the picture of slavery in most of our minds, especially in the American context as we think about it. People can be chattel due to being conquered in war, they can be chattel due to a, a racist. Uh, calibration uh, as in uh, the record of our own history, considering a certain ethnicity less than human, therefore they can be sold like animals. That would be chattel slavery. Nevertheless, it also fills this basic definition. You own a share of another man's labor without his consent. Uh, Thirdly, debt slavery. Uh, Those who have gone into debt may owe uh, a certain they, they may uh, be in slavery to the lender, as the Scriptures say, because they owe their master who has lent them money, so to speak, and to that degree they are indebted to him. He owns a share of their labor. Their labor, to some degree, is owed to him until their debt is paid. Restitution slavery, another biblical concept for those who have transgressed the law, are required to restore what they and to make whole the party who they have uh, stolen from. And then there's empirical slavery, which is slavery of a conquered people. So, those are just a few um, historical and present applications of this idea of slavery, defined and distinguished. But notice that in our text today, the concept of servitude, or more rightly represented, as I'm told in the context of today, is most often was a form of slavery indeed, that the call is to live as servants of God given the subjugation in many cases unjustly so, of slavery. Wow, does this cut against the grain of the popular values of our time. Nevertheless, Peter writes the infallible word and the always relevant scripture, verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Wow, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, There's two surprising things here as I see it in these few verses. Number one is, there seems almost to be a a paradox here. In verse 16, Peter says, live as a people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up. And then verse 18, he says, servants, be subject to your masters. How do you reconcile those two? Well, in our modern culture, it can't be reconciled. Ah, It's proof that the Bible's stupid. The unbeliever, the atheist apologist might say, how can you be both a free person and then willfully subject yourself to your slave master? Well, here's how those two are reconciled. What does it mean to be a free person scripturally? Well, with a people who are free, our people who are subject to human institutions only has obedient service to the one true sovereign. I am going to submit to my slave master, and I'm going to model. Godly suffering under his heavy hand because my true master says so. And this is living as a free person. Let me ask you a question. Who is the freest person that ever lived? The freest person that ever lived? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was the freest man who ever lived. Yet were there times in his ministry where he willfully submitted himself to suffering Yes, but he did so in service to the Lord. And with respect to the economic trinity, God the Father's will was carried out by God the Son to submit himself to subjugation, to suffering, to accomplish an end. Was Jesus ever ultimately at the mercy of Pilate? No. Jesus could have said a word, snapped his fingers, and a legion of angels would have slaughtered. Everyone there. He says to Pilate in John 19, "You have no authority except that which is granted by God." You see, Jesus was not a servant or a slave to Pilate, not in the least. He suffered unobediently the will and command of his one true master, his Father, with respect to his human or with respect to his earthly ministry. In this sense, Jesus was a free person. We need to dispense of this notion. That true freedom is autonomy. That's, re- that's a rebellion. That is an absolute uh, anti-gospel, anti-biblical idea that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. We are created, contingent, dependent creatures. The, the very nature of reality forbids the idea. It's, it's foolish ignorance to think that we could ever be our own God such that we are truly free. We have libertarian free will, as some people say, a God unto ourselves. It is impossible We don't own ourselves, we did not create ourselves, we're not self-sufficient, we're dependent, we're contingent, we're created, so on and so forth. That is outside of the option of, of reality. No, to be a free person, contingent being is to be in service to only one master. And our master is perfect. Our master is loving and kind and long suffering merciful and grants us eternal life and overflowing blessings and the promises of life eternal. Our master is incredible and he is and slavery is an inescapable condition. The Bible says you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness that is a slave to God. You are either a slave to your passions, you know, like we see in our text today, or you are a slave to the Lord. What is a truly free person? Those who are enslaved to the passion of libertarian free will who are burning down our streets today because they're taking out their indignation they think is righteous against the system that they see oppressing them. Are they a free people? Let's say they get what they want and the whole government and social order of America collapses. Will they then be free? Look at the French Revolution and you'll have a real good record of what to expect. Look at the collapse of the Soviet Union, and you know, look at Chaz Chop in the middle of uh, Seattle. That's my favorite example of late. You can see where this so-called claim on liberty will get you. It will get you anarchy, self-contradiction, social suicide, and absolute ruin in an instant. Why? Because slavery is an escapable condition, and you are a free person only insofar as you submit to the Lord. Now, this makes sense in the context. Be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Is our our governors, our lords, are they our masters, truly speaking? No, we are subject to them to some degree in as much as they reward the good, they praise the good and punish the evil, but we do so not because they are our masters, but we do so because the Lord is our master. We do so for the Lord's sake. Likewise, in verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, for this is, uh, um, but not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow, uh, suffering unjustly. So we are mindful not of our masters and the threat that they have over us, but instead, in our subjugation to even this these hierarchical human relationships, we are mindful of God. In doing so, verse sixteen, we live as a people who are free, not using our freedom as a cover up of evil, but. What does it mean to live as a free people? We're living as servants of God. And again, what Jesus himself said, when he submitted to the Father's will and suffering, he continued entrusting himself to his master, so to speak, with respect to his earthly call, to him, as touching his humanity, to him who judges justly. So a free people entrusts themselves to him who judges justly. And when you think about this, you can have joy in some of the most tyrannical, horrible circumstances. Well, let's go back to the story we opened with, Paul and Silas. How could they sing hymns of praise with their back chafing from the recent beating and their arms and legs in stocks? How could they sing for joy and praise their Lord? Because they're worshiping their one true master. They knew that they would not be locked in that prison if he had not granted permission for the civil authorities and for the jailer to keep them there. And they knew at a touch of his sovereign hand they could be released in a moment, and so it was. Yet, uh, answering to Jesus Christ and serving him, living as a free person, as a slave to the Lord and subject to his authority, grants you the grace, to joyfully serve out a prison sentence even if it's on death row or a life sentence for preaching the gospel. And brothers and sisters, this very concept has what has given the heroes of the faith, the ones who have gone before, the grace to faithfully serve the Lord while, as Hebrews 11 records, being sawn in two, being condemned and mocked, being rejected, torn limb from limb and thrown to lions, thrown in prison, so on and so forth this is the key. The subjugation of slavery or tyrannical conditions or suffering is possible to endure when we submit and recognize that there is purpose in this suffering under the Lord. Now, here's the second surprising thing. Living as servants of God, given the subjugation of slavery, it's surprising that we as a free people can embrace will, uh, willingly these conditions. It's also surprising that this suffering is considered a gracious thing. Verse 19, for this is a gracious thing When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This is very interesting. How many of us would consider suffering for Christ's name a grace? The apostles did once again, right? They counted it joy or they were filled with joy to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ's name. What kind of uh, you know, mindset gives you the ability to say such things? Well, it's this. You recognize that if you are enduring suffering because you deserve it in your sin, th- there's no virtue in that. Uh, one who receives suffering as a consequence for wrongdoing is merely living out the moral consequences of a just God in a fallen world. However, there's another category of suffering altogether. And in this category of suffering, it is actually rewarded by the Lord. If your suffering for Christ's namesake is the testimony of your gospel virtue, then it is considered, biblically speaking, a badge of honor to be included in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. And you're declaring solidarity with the sufferings of the Lord. And in so doing, you're proclaiming and modeling the gospel. You're pointing to Jesus Christ who endures suffering so that you might have the grace to endure suffering, to model to someone else how Christ has saved us. Now, this is a foreign concept in our world today. Why? Because in our secular sinfulness, we basically say that suffering is an absolutely purposeless, meaningless reality of the human existence, and there won't be any utopia, there won't be any... uh, Circumstance that we will tolerate until all suffering is eliminated. Meaningless and purposeless suffering is the presupposition of most activist so-called social justice movements, hence the category of a faithfully serving slave is abhorrent in our day and age. But the gospel tells us something different. God has purposes even in sin, even in wickedness. He is sovereign over both, even in affliction and sorrows. And we can do two things at once. We can proclaim that it is unjust that a government inflicts suffering upon those who are undeserving. And we can also celebrate that we are accounted worthy to uh, endure such suffering and look for gospel opportunities to model how Christ suffered for us under those very conditions. So when we call out the injustice of government, we don't do so for our own sake. No, remember, we serve our master over us. We do so because it's a violation of God's Word, right? We're not serving ourselves, our own comfort level, our own human rights, first and foremost. Those are secondary. No, we're not to fear ourselves, fear God, fear the political order, and fear man. We are to fear the Lord. And when we get this orientation correct, it allows us to be truthful, bold, clear, emphatic, and persevering, enduring, and joyful under all kinds of conditions. This is how we are encouraged to live as servants of God, even under the imposition of civil government, even under the subjugation of many forms of slavery, which has been endemic to the human condition since the fall. Now, let's wrap up this message at point number three. Living as servants of God, given the example of Christ's own suffering. We'll touch upon this point briefly. I hope to spend more time on it later, but this is where the real power is. We've touched upon it in part already, but let us read He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Praise the Lord. So here, as Peter is wont to do, he points us back to the gospel itself, the work of Jesus Christ which provides the model for us in embracing our own call. In doing so, he emphasizes that Christ was free from sin. Christ did not take the occasion of the injustice perpetrated against him to start a zealot movement. No, he understood God's sovereign purposes through it and lived as a quintessential free man recognizing that that sorrow was ordained by a holy God and that it, when He committed no sin yet suffered for our sins, these conditions actually achieved the atonement of the elect. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Now, let me ask you, did God justly judge the society that rejected their Messiah? You bet He did. Jesus did not have to exercise in that moment as touching His human ministry uh, consequences for Pilate and all the sinners who condemned Him, falsely accused Him to the death of corporal punishment, even the death on the cross. Why? Because the God who judges justly did that in part in A.D. 70. The destruction of Jerusalem came as a sign from heaven, a supernatural intervention, God inter-invading in history in very tangible ways saying, I am Lord of history. And when you kill my son, you will be killed if you do not repent. No one escapes God's justice. Now, it doesn't always happen in this life the way we expect and wish it would, but God's time frame is perfect. And at the fullness of time, every one of us will stand before the judgment seat of a holy God, And the only ones who will be pronounced innocent are those who are covered by the blood represented here at the communion table. Those who are not, they will receive on that day of reckoning a just sentence. Can you trust, believer, in this meantime, that if God calls you to endure suffering under an unjust government for an indefinite period of time, can you trust your future, your conditions, your own sense of righteousness, propriety, fairness, and justice to the God who judges justly? I hope you can answer yes, because if you can answer yes, you can endure this time, even if we go through a protracted period of increasing injustice and increasing persecution against the church. If the modern trajectory, if the present trajectory continues, I suspect that will be the case. However, do we not have sufficient ground to stand whatever God's sovereign purposes are in our time? Yes, we do. Christ stood in spite of this horrific suffering. The least worthy of all to endure this suffering did so because he recognized God's sovereign purpose in it. Jesus was free from sin. And being free from sin, we recognize that he was the ultimate free man. What does it mean? Because of his work, we can actually die to sin. And this relates to the idea of master and servant. In other words, when is a slave absolutely free from his master? Well, he is never more absolutely free than when he's dead. Can the master lay any claim to the future labor of a slave after he is dead? The concept is absurd. And this is to illustrate what death to sin really means. If you are dead to sin, then the claim of sin being your master on you is absolutely severed. And that's the power, the delivering power of Jesus' work on Calvary for you, such that your mas- you are now dead to your former master's sin. Praise the Lord that our God, our Lord Jesus endured such suffering because that was what was necessary for us to be free, for us to be free from the worst slavery of all, bondage to sin and wickedness, bondage to the devil. He trusted himself to the absolute judge, as we've mentioned, knowing that he did not have to defend himself in this case, but God would defend him. And so we reference how he did. And finally, he recognized he was suffering with purpose. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. What was the purpose for Christ's suffering? To atone for our sins, number one. By his wounds, you have been healed. The sickness and the depravity, the death of sin, That plagued you. You talk about a pandemic. The ultimate pandemic is sin. And there is only one way to be healed. And the purpose of Jesus' own suffering included within it, the atonement of your very sins. There's more. In His death on Calvary, He secured your obedience. He Himself bore our sins in His body in the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Christ was suffering with purpose to atone for our sins and to secure our righteousness, to secure our obedience. As, again, if you're a believer in this room, in the sound of this message, who are you? You're an elect exile sojourner. You're a believer. You're born again. You're a Christian. You're identified with Christ. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession to proclaim the excellencies of Him that standing, that identity, and that obedience and righteousness that flows forth from your new self, the new creation, was secured by Christ's suffering. And finally, He suffered with for the purpose of acquiring sheep. For you were straying like sheep, verse 25, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The rewards of Christ's suffering include all of the elect coming in. Every sheep, every last one, tangled in the brambles and the briars like you and I were of our own uh, self-defeating and depraved sin on this precipice over here, in this valley over there, we are, have found our way back not because of anything we have done, but we have been carried to the fold by the good shepherd. And this is a result of the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. So again, what is the message? For to this you have been called. What is our calling? In many cases, enduring suffering. And we, uh, because Christ has suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. We can have this reassurance if God has called us to suffer now or is calling us into a season of suffering. Just like the sufferings of Christ had purpose unto atonement of sins, securing our obedience and acquiring sheep for himself, So our suffering has redemptive purpose too. What are these redemptive purposes? Well, to show forth that suffering, uh, to show forth the gospel, to show forth that the suffering of Christ had purpose. And this is what the jailer saw in the case of Paul and Silas and compelled him in part. It was a means that God used to display the Christ crucified for him that caused him to cry out in repentance and faith and for his whole family to be converted and baptized. Amazing. Suffering with purpose. Now, as we conclude our message today, it is very natural, is it not, to transition to the communion portion of our service. We have before us the evidence, if you will, symbolically represented of Christ's own suffering. It was His body that was broken for us. It was His blood that was shed. And aren't you thankful this day that Christ endured the most unjust suffering of all at the hands of sinners for your sake, ultimately for the glory of God, but to to acquire for Himself the elect, to acquire His sheep, to atone for our sins, and to secure our obedience? Aren't you thankful? I pray that as you approach this feast today, the table of the Lord, that your heart would rejoice that Jesus Christ suffered on your behalf, that you might be free of your sins, that you might forever feast upon Him. He is, after all, as we've learned recently, your source of eternal life, that well-represented of living water. He is, after all, abundant life and bread in the wilderness, the fulfillment of the picture of old manna sent from heaven. He is all of these things unto us, the sustenance that we need in order to feast and to commune with God eternal forever. As we open this service, He is the means whereby we ascend the hill of Zion. Those who have pure heart and clean hands, washed in the blood of the Paschal Lamb, the sufficient sacrifice, they are the ones who can see God. They are the ones who are deemed holy because of His work. So I pray that you would remember these things at the Lord's table, which we will open to believers in this room in mere moments. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the message of your holy scriptures. We thank you that the gospel holds forth for us the very ground of our hope. And our endurance, we thank you that in the blood of Christ was secured the payment that was necessary for our transgression. And in his broken body, entrance into the Holy of Holies was secured for those who passed through the veil of his flesh who recognized Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, and Paschal Lamb. I pray today that we, these things would be remembered and proclaimed at your table, and you would etch upon the table of our hearts, even through this means of this celebration here this morning, at your table, these things that we may not soon forget them. Lord, as we approach the, your table, I pray that it would equip us to suffer, Lord Jesus, whatever you might call us to endure with purpose, recognizing that you are our sovereign Lord. You are our master who is perfectly wise perfectly able and has secured our salvation in Christ alone. Lord, help us to remember these things and to proclaim them in and through this service and beyond to the praise of your great name, to the advancement of your great kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.